Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a good Thursday morning to you. Welcome to The Ron Show, whether you're listening on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast, heading to the Progressive Voices Network as well in a future weeks. Looking forward to that. Later in the show, I'm going to talk with uh, Jessica Four. She is, uh, in fact, today or tomorrow, I believe, going to be filing to run for the nomination for the 10th Congressional District. Uh, she'll be vying for that uh, opportunity to represent Democrats versus Lexi Doherty. We'll have uh, her on to kind of give us a lay of the land, how things are feeling, the vibe of the 10th Congressional District, athens Clark County in general, in the wake of the uh, death of the University of Georgia student allegedly at the hands of an undocumented immigrant. So we'll uh, we'll talk with Jessica second half of the show. First up, though, is the executive director of the Georgia Win List, our good friend, friend of the show, Melita Easters. Good morning. How are you? I'm great, and it's lovely to talk to you. Same here. Thanks for having me on. I've been wanting to have you on, basically, just to sort of explain to me the Alabama in vitro fertilization ruling and why it's so dangerous that a judicial body made such a decision. I am a man. I'm obviously not one looking for IVF. Uh, I'm also a gay man, so I don't have a wife or a significant other who's looking to uh, use uh, in vitro fertilization to have a child. So help me understand the ramifications, the implications with such a ruling. Well, many gay men use IVF and a surrogate to have children. Yes. So it could be something in your future if, if you had a partner who wanted to use that procedure. But the, the court ruling in Alabama happened after some frozen embryos were inadvertently destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so the court ruled that frozen embryos are extrauterine children. And, and had the same status as children. Now, there's no scientific basis for this. There's no medical basis for this. We all know that none of us are going to poke our child into a freezer. <laughs> so that's how absurd this ruling is. The ruling also used um, quasi-religious um, language and and you can talk about the religion of when life begins mm-hmm. all day long mm-hmm. and we'll leave that to seminary students mm-hmm. but this whole ivf process is a highly expensive emotionally um roller roller coaster inducing um process for couples who desperately want to have children mm-hmm. and it, it takes months and sometimes years to have a baby through this process. And so the fact that Alabama can make a ruling which prompts many IVF clinics in that state to pause operations and, and think about families who are trying to have a baby and they are six to eight months into the process of trying to have a baby. Maybe the woman's had surgery to correct um, a, a birth defect that that made her unable to carry a pregnancy to term. Mm-hmm. So maybe she's had surgery, maybe the eggs have been harvested and they're in that freezer, but they haven't been implanted yet. And now 
the people they've been working with, the people they've gotten to know have said, well, because of this new ruling, we can't do this anymore. They're stuck high and dry. Mm. And and so, you know, the, the U.S. Senate, Senator Tammy Duckworth, reintroduced a bill to protect IVF that Republicans had previously rejected. And again, on yesterday, Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith from Mississippi killed that bill again. In the meantime, you have in Georgia, Senator Elena Parent and State Representative Terry Anulowitz, both introducing health care bills this week that, if passed, would ensure Georgians have access to both contraception and IVF treatment. Now, because Thursday, um, February 29th, um, leap year day, oh, yeah. um, is crossover day in the Georgia General Assembly, th- there's going to have to be some legal um, manipulations of sort, you know, parliamentary procedures to ha- see have either of those bills see the light of day. But at least Democrats are trying to reassure Georgia families who are in the process of trying to have a child. So can you explain to me why it is that the uh, IVF treatment centers in Alabama stopped cold, why they just said, nope, we, we've got to stop, we've got to protect ourselves from uh, legal ramifications? What What is it that happens that they feel like they're imperiled legally? Well, the, the case evolved from the accidental dropping of test tubes that had embryos in them. Oh my gosh. So, so that's there, there's, there's that. The other thing is that in IVF, in the process of deciding which eggs to implant, because a number of eggs are fertilized at the same time, mm-hmm. they're, they're harvested and then fertilized, and then they're examined to determine which are the most viable. Mm-hmm. Others are often destroyed. So if a fertilized egg is a child, there's liability there. Mm. Also, maybe you successfully have two healthy children through IVF. Mm -hmm. And then the couple says, we've got our family. Let's take those other fertilized eggs. I see. And so there's that. Then there's also, I mean... IVF is such an emotional roller coaster that some marriages don't survive IVF. Mm. And it's very common to see the determination of what happens to the fertilized eggs as a part of a divorce settlement. Mm-hmm. So there are there are several points at which the um, doctors who provide those medical services feel legally liable and legally vulnerable. This is just another reproductive rights issue that, uh, as you spoke to just now, medical professionals feel hamstrung. They don't know whether to say the sky is blue or whether water is wet. It's, It's just, it's dangerous territory right now for not just women who are seeking these services, but for anyone who provides them. Yes. And, and the thing is, this is what happens when legislators start trying to practice medicine 
without a license. And we saw when the current six-week abortion ban in Georgia was passed in 2019, Mm. the legislators were warned about the kinds of questions we now see occurring of what constitutes um, the mother's life being in danger. And this is being debated in legislatures and in courtrooms all across the country. Because right now, the way many of these laws, including Georgia's law, are written, you have the doctor saying, my patient is in medical distress because of an incomplete miscarriage. It's past the time that abortion is banned in my state. And instead of rushing in to give the woman the medical treatment his medical training or her medical training requires, that doctor has to pick up the phone and call the hospital lawyer (laughs) to determine what the best case scenario is to keep the hospital from being sued. And I'm also curious to know if, if medical providers, hospitals, and hospital networks are lawyering up even more uh, to combat these challenges. And of course, we'll see that on our hospital bill, which just only increases the cost of healthcare even that much more. And I would imagine that that is even more a disparity for a female patient in such a measure uh, as opposed to somebody who goes in, you know, to get his appendix removed. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the, the thing is, no woman should have to proceed to a point of sepsis or imminent death to get the medical care that her symptoms suggested a day or two before. So we're with Melita Easter. She's the executive director of the Georgia Win List. Your organization champions female candidates who are running for office uh you know, who champion women's rights. So I I imagine you've got your finger on the pulse here. This is yet another, it seems to me anyway, situation where the dog catches the car and doesn't know what to do with it. We've seen, as you mentioned, legislative efforts be stalled at the federal and at the state level and in several states. Alabama legislators are still trying to figure out what to do about this as well. Has this uh, invigorated the base even more in an election cycle where there's so many issues for us to pay attention to. The suburban woman vote obviously is crucial to either party succeeding in 2024. So give me your take on, on, on a sense of where that portion of the electorate is motivated. Well, I can, I can assure you that it has motivated women voters and many moderate voters who previously might have voted either way. Mm. They are looking at candidates who support reproductive freedom. And beginning Monday, um, March 4th, there is a week of qualifying for candidates in Georgia. And you're going to see um, a lot of women candidates who are pledged to protect and restore reproductive freedom who are qualifying in those suburban flippable seats 
when the list is already um, voted on and we'll have a press conference to make six early endorsements next week on Thursday and we have an event that evening, I can tell you that two of our early endorsed women candidates have raised staggering sums to run against sitting Republican women who are not in favor of restoring reproductive freedom. One of those candidates has raised $300,000 for a house seat. The other one, who's been fundraising for a shorter period of time, has raised more than 100000 to challenge a member of the Republican leadership. So there is a lot of attention, energy, enthusiasm, and yes, even money on the side of women candidates who are pledged to protect reproductive freedom. We're on with Melita Easter. She's the executive director of the Georgia Win List, here to help me make more sense of the Alabama IVF ruling than I could figure out on my own, and I appreciate you for doing that. Stand by. We're going to come back uh, and talk here in just a little bit. It is Leap Day, as she mentioned, but we are heading into March, which is Women's History Month. We'll touch on that in just a second. We're back with Melita Easter. She's the executive director of the Georgia Win List, here to help me understand the Alabama IVF ruling and the ramifications and perils, not just for women who seek the procedure, but for those who are working in reproductive treatment centers who are trying to help uh, women, couples, even, as she mentioned before, sometimes gay couples who are looking to use surrogacy to have children, uh, the repercussions and the ramifications of that ruling. We're also on the precipice. It is February 29th, Leap Day. We are also on the precipice of Women's History Month. And uh, I know you... uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about, the, you know, heading into that month and some uh, events and uh, of notoriety to, uh, to to bring to attention here. So let's let's hearken on that a little bit. You know, I meant to meant, I, did I tell you this? I, when I was here uh, managing my last radio station, I was with one of our female air talents and we wanted to do like a women's history lunch. And we had bold, bright ideas for something like that. So uh, go forth and take that and, and make something like that happen for us, Melita. <laughs> well, WinList now has an annual spring event cool. on the evening before International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. Um, and International Women's Day this year is March the 8th. And it's a day recognized by the UN. It was first celebrated in the early 1900s before women in the United States even had the right to vote. In fact, in 1908, 15,000 women marched in New York City to advocate shorter working hours, better pay, and voting rights. Mm -hmm. Um, The UN has set a theme of invest in women, accelerate progress for this year's International Women's Day. And then immediately following International Women's Day is March 12th, which is Equal Pay Day Mm. 2024. Mm. It's the symbolic day which makes note of how far into the next year women need to work to be paid what men were paid in the previous year. So the gender pay gap for women right now stands at 84% for full-time year-round workers. And I can remember when that gender pay gap was much greater. Um, And of course, black women have a 69 cents on the dollar gender pay gap and Latina women have a 57 cents on the dollar equal pay gap. Wow. Um, so, so Women's History Month is not just a time to celebrate women's history and the historic achievements by certain women. 
it's also a time to assess where women stand in terms of pay, in terms of representation, because women are underrepresented at all levels of government, both globally, nationally, and locally. And so Women's History Month makes us ever more mindful of the inequities women still fight against. It's so funny. Uh, my guest Monday was uh, Chitra Raghavan. She is a CEO coach, C-suite executive uh, assistant uh, coach. And we, we talked about how difficult it is for ambitious women, ambitious and or dominant women. We were talking specifically about Fannie Willis in, in many cases, how difficult it is and how the, there are different sets of rules that women who have ambitions have to abide by in order to succeed. Yes. It's uh, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's just a jarring. I just wanted to harken back to that. If anybody wants to check that out, uh, wherever you podcast or at ronshowatl.com. Uh, uh, are you on the Georgia Gang panel this uh, this coming weekend? I am. Um, I'm on for several weeks in a row because um, one of my colleagues on the show is traveling. So I will be on the Georgia Gang this week and next. I have to imagine this weekend's show is going to be explosive. Are you pre- are you prepared for all? <laughs> Just I watch I watch this show because I'm first of all I'm a political junkie. Also because I like rooting you on. I also do like hearing what conservatives have to say. I just feel like I come away with a lot of empty calories with the pundits who tend to be on that show with you. But I, I watch this and I go, okay. I hope she's caffeinated. I hope she's ready to go. And you always come in with the notes. You're so ready. Well, I I probably over prepare at times, but you are better off um, being prepared. It's almost like when you give speeches to a group, mm. there you have a captive audience, and you owe it to them to be prepared and yes. to have thought out what you're going to say. And and I feel that way about people who are tuning into the Georgia Gang. I owe it to the audience to at least prepare and have something other than platitudes to to talk about other than platitudes well on that note i guess the last thing i want to ask you is i know the lake and riley situation is going to be at the forefront and there's so much focus on immigration and not enough focus on women and being safe to go out for a jog has that crossed your mind as well as all of this kerfuffle has come up about immigration that we're not paying attention to how women don't feel safe going out for a run Women have never felt completely safe going out for a run. Now, and even back when I was in college at UGA many, many years ago, I mean, men often don't understand how often women grasp their keys in their hands in such a way that if they are shocked or surprised, the keys go straight into the eyes of the person who's trying to grab them by the neck. And women don't feel safe. But it's something that from a very early age, you learn how to counteract, mm. how to defend yourself. Mm. And, and so, yes, it, 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 this is an issue. This tragedy for this young woman's family has been hijacked for political points by a particular party that same party not being willing to sometimes spend the money that would make campuses safer or Mm -hmm. cities safer. Mm -hmm. 
We talked about the seven point three million that UGA wants to spend and went over the list yesterday to it. I just I don't see anything that would have prevented Lincoln Riley's death coming in that spending. Well, it, you you cannot protect against an evil heart and bad intentions in every instance. Right. What I really would like to know is why this man was released in New York after being um, accused there. I haven't had full answers for that. Maybe it's an, an, an article that I missed. But he, the accused, was already in the system and had already been red flagged yeah. before he came to Georgia. Yeah, doing harm to a minor, I believe. I, th- I think that was uh, what, yes. what came up. So yeah, And in most places, you don't get out after such a thing, especially if you're already in, in the country illegally. True that. All right, well, we'll be watching you guys Sunday, 8.30 in the morning on WAGA Fox 5. From the Georgia Windless Executive Director, Melita Easters, thank you for joining us on The Ron Show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Same here. More on the Lake and Riley incident and the pulse inside athens Clark County. Democratic primary congressional candidate Jessica Ford joins us next when The Ron Show returns. Follow The Ron Show on Facebook at The Ron Show Radio. The Ron Show on America One Radio. Jessica Ford joins me. She is running for Congress. Congratulations on that. Do you know what you're getting yourself into, ma'am? <laughs> Unfortunately, I know better than I'd like to because this is my second run because I ran in uh, in 2022. But uh, it was definitely a learning experience, and I'm you know I'm raring to go this time. A glutton for punishment, she is. She's running for Georgia's 10th congressional district, and oh, what's going on in that district lately? I mean, let's just dive right down into it. Uh, Athens yeah. Clark County is a white hot focus right now for uh, folks uh, on all political stripes, and unfortunately. The thing that kind of grosses me out is I, I feel like we're, we're seeing the death of a college student, 22-year-old uh, Lake and mm-hmm. Riley, uh, found dead, uh, were unresponsive near death, and eventually passing away from injuries sustained from an attack. And whereas if this were a mass shooting, if there were 20 or more Lakens, now would not be the time to talk about it. But right. we seem to find the time to talk about immigration issues Despite the fact that we don't have a conviction yet, we don't really know exactly what happened or what law enforcement will spell the situation out to be, but folks have run to their predictable foxholes to discuss immigration because uh, Jose Antonio Ibarra, who is an undocumented Venezuelan, has been arrested and being charged with Lake and Riley's murder. So uh, it's it's good to have you on. Uh, I'd like to talk a, a little bit about your campaign, and, and we'll get to that. Uh, first, tell us a little bit about yourself and why voters in the 10th Congressional District should be looking at you as opposed to their incumbent. Yeah, well, I, uh, you know, I've, I've spent almost my entire adult life in District 10. Um, I live in Athens, Georgia, which is also where I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Georgia. Um, I'm from Macon, originally born and raised, and um, been spending time in District 10 since I was about eight years old um, mm-hmm. and uh, have been meaningfully involved in the broader district doing a lot of uh, nonprofit service work and a lot of church ministry, especially in the United Methodist Church. Um, I've also been heavily involved 
involved in uh, anti-abuse victim advocacy work, especially in religious uh, settings. And um, and so I, you know, I'd rather have invasive dental work than be a politician, but I entered the race <laughs> in 2022, the first time around, and again this time, um, really out of a moral conviction uh, that you know, we need people operating in good faith, uh, trying to solve problems in politics rather than trying to use problems to advance ourselves, um, which is what I see Republicans doing, uh, especially, you know, dealing with the buildup at the border and the the conversation that's now taking place surrounding that. Um, and so, you know, I, I got into the race because I see the primary problem in politics and really in so many of these issues that we're dealing with, whether it's police violence, whether it's, um, you know, bad faith actors uh, who commit violent crimes, whether it's school shootings, uh, you know, I see a, a, a tremendous analogy with the kinds of people who um, are pathological abusers of power mm. um, and who, uh, you know, very often will have a history of domestic violence or a history of violent crime that, that could have been red flagged prior to um, a terrible event. And, um, you know, and I also see people who like to abuse power um, being very drawn to political spaces where they can advance themselves. And I think that that's uh, the way that I would characterize the, the rise of Trumpism and a lot of the issues that we're dealing with as a country. So that's a perspective that I bring to the table that I think is a useful conversation to have. So I lived in Athens for about five years myself. I tell people all the time I'm like a 28th year sophomore at the University of Georgia, uh, yeah. me meaning I uh, never completed it. But uh, <laughs> I lived there for quite a while. It's a lovely city. Uh, you leave the city limits and you've left civilization in a lot of respects. It's a, it's a blue dot in a deeply red area of the state. So this is an uphill climb for you. Talk to me about how uh, liberals and progressives, Democratic candidates, can carry a conversation with voters who I think are deeply entrenched in their beliefs uh, from decades of spin and misinformation in a lot of cases, especially with regards to an issue like immigration. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's very challenging to get people to even have that conversation because yep. so oftentimes um, in politics, you know, it's, it's not even dialing down to what people actually believe about policy issues. Um, it's it's very much a, a tribal digging in. You know, mm -hmm. trying to talk to somebody about their political party is kind of like trying to talk to somebody about their football team. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's like you're not, you know, my, my father is Dr. Dog, and he got two two degrees in Florida before coming to Athens and getting his doctorate. So he's, you know, I joke that he's a born-again bulldog. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, people don't people don't usually change their football teams unless they're Gators, and then they figure out a better way <laughs> by, <laughs> by being bulldogs. But, um you know, it's it's really difficult to to dial things down to um, to issues and and what people actually believe in. But if you can get somebody to have that conversation, who tends to have a more conservative perspective, uh, you know, if they are if they're operating in good faith, if they're not one mm. of the you know raging MAGA people who who really likes racism and stuff, if they are um, you know somebody who maybe is a sincere Christian and they're coming from uh, a belief that you know if I vote for Republicans, I'm going to be pro-life and, and stuff like that. If you can actually get them to talk about issues and policies and what kinds of policies are most effective um, at uh, solving the problems that they're worried about, whether that's by reducing the abortion rate through birth control and sex education, right. or whether that's through 
you know, making sure that we have border security and that we allocate resources um, to be able to process asylum claims in an orderly way and actually mm-hmm. screen people instead of just having like this buildup um, of folks that that you know break through and get into the country without documentation. Uh, if you can if you can get down to values and facts and talk about policy issues, then a lot of times it's easier to um, to get people on board, and uh, and that really requires kind of um, getting people out of this reactive fight and flight polarized emotional state that that i think our media maintains 24 7 um because people are easier to manipulate if you can keep them angry and keep them activated and i see a lot of that happening in right-wing rhetoric surrounding this issue Mm -hmm. and in a lot of the um sort of politicized opinion shows that are that are airing that people are tuning into a lot I liken this a lot to the meme that we see uh, in social media where the the kid is poking a stick into the spoke of the bike that he's riding and then (laughs) falls over and cusses everybody out except the person holding the stick who poked it in the, you know, uh, bike. Because I see this, it's with this with this issue in particular with with immigration. Uh, there's been such a concern about the cost of groceries, and and yet we we didn't talk about the supply chain issues that uh, we could not address uh, post COVID. While we had fifteen thousand immigrants who were sitting on their hands idly from Haiti, for example, or El Salvador, that might have wanted to come here to find work and work hard to help feed their families and, oh, by the way, maybe get our supply chain up and running again. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I don't like to, to just stick to the trope of uh, undocumented immigrants only working on farms and in factory right. uh, animal processing factories, but that is a, a lot of it. But Republicans don't seem to connect the dots on that. You, you spoke of being able to fund border protection in a way that not only is it about just building walls, but it's about building centers that can process these folks in a timely and more efficient manner. Exactly. None of us like going to the DMV because we go and there's 15 windows and three people working. It's the same damn thing. So if we could circumvent the DMV and get our license somewhere else, we would do it. If we had this volume of people that were being processed through any place that processes a bunch of people, um, you know, whether it's people trying to get into a concert or Disney World or the Atlanta airport or whatever it is, you know, we've got to have policy that faces the reality of what the problem is in order to solve it. Um, And the problem is that there's, you know, there's not enough political will on the Republican side, certainly, to actually engage the problem and say, how do we provide effective solutions? And so, for example, we've just had a bipartisan border security bill that could have been passed to provide some of those resources. And instead, Republicans tanked it for the purpose of maintaining the problem so that they can blame Democrats and Trump can wring his hands and run on that as a campaign issue, because the problem is more valuable than the solution. Well, not only is the problem more valuable than the solution, and I, I, I agree a thousand percent, it's, it's been borne out for, for the last three decades or so. Republicans have had the opportunity to work on a bipartisan manner to deal with immigration policy substantively. And they've balked at it every time. But I also point to the fact that we're, we're not dealing with solving a problem. We're dealing with doling out aspirin for a, a cancer tumor. There, yeah. There is an immigration crisis because there are crises throughout Latin America in right. various countries that send people here. And by and large, we're kind of the culprits. If we didn't outright cause it, we definitely contributed, whether it be sanctions or military action for the last 50 to 100 years, and we don't seem to have an appetite for accepting some responsibility, let alone being dutiful enough to say, well, we need to help fix what we may have messed up. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is nobody wants to talk about the role of um, previous decades of, of U.S. foreign policy in some of these places and, and some of the fallout that exists now. Um, and that's, you know, that's definitely part of, um, you know, part of the part of the problem that needs to be solved is not just waiting until the point where somebody has uh, taken you know, what limited belongings they can put in a knapsack and put their kids on their back and hike through a desert to arrive at the border trying to uh, get into the United States because they're desperate uh, for a better life. We, we need to be looking at the, the root causes and, um, you know, providing some avenues for uh, maybe applying for some of those asylum claims from their home countries before undertaking uh, such, a, such a dangerous journey. Um, and we need to be looking at, you know, the United States role in stabilizing the, some of those countries and taking some responsibility for our roles in it. We're talking with Jessica Ford. She's going to be running for the Democratic nomination, hoping to unseat Mike Collins in the uh, 10th Congressional District in the state of Georgia, representing us in the House of Representatives. And obviously at the forefront uh, right now from that district is the tragic death of Lakin Riley. Uh, mm-hmm. Athens has been catching a lot of heat. I saw the mayor tried to hold a press conference and had idiots shouting throughout. I mean, how do you hold a press conference when some moron or two is, is trying to yell and I don't understand yeah. how law enforcement didn't just escort these people out so that the mayor could do his job, which was to, you know, give an update to the media. But Athens, Clark County is catching a lot of flack for being uh, this quote unquote sanctuary city. Local prosecutors under a lot of heat for being permissive. At least that's the perception from conservatives. You're yeah. from that area. Can you kind of give us a better interpretation of what actually is fact uh, when it comes to Athens' uh, role as a sanctuary city? Yeah, so so my understanding is that, you know, Athens is not, quote unquote, a sanctuary city, but it's being um, characterized that way because uh, Athens cares about all of the people who are in Athens. Um, and, and what I see from the mayor and from the commission is is very much a good faith effort to maintain law and order, but to have compassion, especially for situations where there are a lot of uh, local families who have mixed immigration status. Mm -hmm. And so you may have someone who who has a green card and somebody who doesn't. Um, And, you know, you've got got people who are um, here under a variety of circumstances. And what we are doing is saying, we're not going to have draconian blanket policies um, that go and target people based on their immigration status when they have, uh, you know, trivial things that, that may come up um, where, they're, where they're being looked at from, you know, something. I, I mean, I think, I think Barra had been arrested at one point for shoplifting. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an issue. And so, you know, we could have a blanket policy that says, well, if you, you know, if you're here without a green card and you get arrested for shoplifting, it's just going to become the giant priority of law enforcement to come and find you and deport you. Right. Um, I don't think that that's systemically taken in the aggregate across the entire population, um, you know, something that's going to have good effects on on the broader community. And I think that's what um, Mayor Gertz was getting at. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I texted him the other night and um, his entire concern, you know, even texted me back. I asked him if he was doing okay uh, with all of this you know, kind of accusation and blaming him and holding him responsible personally uh, for for such a such a horrible thing um, that that this terrible violent person did to this wonderful young woman, um, and and he texted back and his only concern was uh, you know for the family and for the loss that they have had and right. um, for just this this terrible terrible act of violence that we are all horrified by. Mm-hmm. 
So the other thing I, I would like to point out is we have no idea, because Athens does seem to have a little bit of a permissive stance when it comes to uh, their undocumented population, we don't know that Ibarra might not have been easier to apprehend because of a culture where law enforcement uh, is able to speak to those who may or may not be undocumented in this country or in that part of the country who were willing to speak up. Yeah, very much so. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, people are not going to be inclined to cooperate with law enforcement about um, identifying some some of these folks who they may know, um, you know, are having some issues and need to be looked at carefully. It's yeah. the people that, that are close to them that are going to be most aware of that, right? And, um, but they're going to be very demotivated to go to, go to the police with concerns uh, if they are concerned about the people that they love, maybe some of their family members, maybe some of their friends, um, and being concerned that that may result in negative effects on uh, on others. Um, so that's a very relevant point in this. So I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and uh, I, I would actually like to catch up and talk more about some other important issues for you as uh, this race yeah. gets uh, rolling here. So we're uh, on with Jessica Four. She is running for the Democratic nomination to unseat Mike Collins in Congress, the 10th Congressional District, hopefully uh, on the ballot this November. We'll catch up with her when the run show returns in minutes on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast in seconds. We're back with Jessica Ford. She is running for the Democratic nomination to unseat Mike Collins, the 10th Congressional District here in Georgia. That uh, area has been a powder keg of sorts with the death, uh, the murder, it would seem, of Lakin Riley, the University of Georgia 22-year-old nursing student. Uh, so we've talked a great deal about immigration and Ibarra's situation with uh, Lake and Riley's murder. I- I'd like to find out what other issues are important to you as uh, we gear into the primary and then the general election cycle, if you should happen to be the nominee. I think that the residents of Georgia are really concerned with concrete kitchen table kind of stuff. People are feeling extremely squeezed economically with the affordable housing crisis. Um, You know, we're having conversations around what constitutes a living wage when rents are rising so high. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's definitely a concern. I think that we need to be catching up to the rest of the industrialized world uh, in terms of healthcare access. And, you know, we've had a lot of issues in this district with rural hospital closures. Uh, that's been a significant factor in people not being able to access emergency health care in a timely fashion when something's happening, if they're living out in one of those rural communities. We're also just at a, at a crucial moment for our democracy and for the, the continuity of our ability to you know, even even get at any of these issues uh, because, you know, we're, we're looking like we're going to have another Trump-Biden rematch in the fall. And, you know, we have somebody that's going to, you know, most likely be the Republican nominee um, who has literally staged a violent coup trying to overthrow the government and install himself as dictator. Uh, he's been held liable for rape in civil court, you know, and we've got an entire political apparatus that is looking at that like, yes, this is great. Let's overthrow democracy and let's install people that we know are dishonest and and basically you know use it as an opportunity to exert power over people that disagree with us politically and um, you know own the libs rather than preserving our American democracy and and doing what's good for people and that's that's the big concern that I have right now and that's one of the main reasons that I entered the race it blows me away I grew up being a, a kid uh, outside Augusta Georgia and, and I remember adults in my circle talking about the good old boy network and loathing them and back then 
in the 70s and 80s, most politicians, most local leaders who were conservatives, they were just conservative Democrats. Now, you know, conservatives have by and large embraced the Republican brand, but the Good Old Boy Network is still there. It's still alive and well. And as much as a liberal bastion as Athens is, athens Clark County, there's still a lot of good old boyism in that district. Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, Athens, we're always under the scrutiny of the Georgia state legislature, which is so Republican controlled, right. even though the state of Georgia is blue or purple. Um, we went to Biden in the last election and we've elected two Democratic senators, largely due uh, to the organizing efforts of, of Stacey Abrams and other talented Democrats in, in Georgia. But, you know, we, we get bled into surrounding areas that are heavily Republican. Um, and in fact, the district that I'm in, District 10, the lines were redrawn pursuant to the Senate to the census for the 2022 election and then the state of Georgia got sued for uh, basically having been having been racist in the way that it drew its new congressional districts right. um, they were forced to create a new majority black district in the Atlanta area mm-hmm. and as a result um, they ended up redrawing the lines again of district 10 and they um, we had 18 counties now we have 20 counties and um, it's it's very difficult to even you know, go and find the correct information about where your district lines are so that you know where to go and vote. Um, but they they definitely target and dilute the political power of athens Clark County specifically, mm-hmm. um, because this is a hub of, you know, highly educated, highly uh, politically active Democrats who um, are, are really trying to do everything that they possibly can to serve their community and make life better for regular Georgians. Um, and that's uh, not conducive to the Republican strategy of let's just consolidate power at all costs. Well, and, and this goes back to uh, the Athens uh, district attorney who catches a lot of flack because she's trying to do things a different way. Yeah. Again, dealing with crime the way the Republicans want to deal with it is like slapping a Band-Aid on a tumor. It's not going to eradicate the cancer. We don't deal with causation. Again, causation. And this goes back to, I think, the Democratic Party uh, and some of its politicians not being all that good at messaging and pointing out that we're trying to deal with causation. And crime exists where opportunity doesn't. And to deal with the opportunity deficit is how you solve for the abundance of crime in the first place. And I think that's what we, we saw this happening in San Francisco, and it didn't take very long before there was backlash because of this perception of crime running rampant in uh, uh, retail circles, when actually retail data shows that that's not actually the case. But I, I see this happening here, too. It's not as if the get tough on crime, lock people up and throw away the key thing has actually worked. We've tried that right. for four or five decades now. And Maybe it's time to try something else, but we're just not giving uh, folks like the district attorney there really a fair opportunity to hash this out. Locking people up for crimes doesn't prevent crime, but it does make a lot of money for for-profit prison corporations. Um, so it's you know it's it's profitable to uh, incarcerate people, and that's one of the reasons that we have uh, the highest. I think we've got the highest incarceration rate in the world compared mm. to our population. For the free country um, that we know, are, certainly more so than than a lot of countries that a lot of Americans, uh, certainly on the on the right side of the aisle, would would look down their noses at. Yeah. It's always interesting to me that. Republicans tend to have an approach to issues, which is let's let the problem happen and then let's punish people for it versus let's look at the cause of the problem and then let's look at what we can do to prevent and solve the problem. Again, causation. And that's uh, the Biden-Harris administration has been working on root causation for migration in Latin America, bringing us back to the conversation with Blake and Riley murder. Have been doing that since February 2021, but nobody knows about it. And that goes back to messaging. Well, real quick, my last question. Since you're running for a Democratic position, how are you working on 
making sure the messaging cuts through to an audience that may not be finding it otherwise? Well, it's challenging. It's really, really challenging for a lot of reasons. One is money. Um, there's there's not a lot of money in the underdog side of, uh, of a race. And mm-hmm. so if you're running as a blue candidate in a red district, it is very challenging to get your message out. Another challenge is that political messaging is very tailored to little short sound bites, little short slogans. And um, little short slogans don't leave a lot of room for complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they tend to be preaching to the choir kinds of statements. Yep. And it's something that Republicans are really good at. It. Yes. They're really good at the sound bites and the short little things because they don't care about manipulating people. Right. Um, they don't care about being honest or encompassing uh, multiple things being true at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so for me, as far as messaging, I, I have put out <laughs> a pretty funny campaign video. I um, saw it. The cow poop. Manure yeah. on the farm while chatting <laughs> about good old Mike Collins. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's really going to take a lot of uh, social media engagement and trying to raise enough money to to put some things in front of people that they might not have thought about before. It's It's got to be sort of unique approaches to getting people to pay attention and maybe think differently than they have before. I think we're saying the same thing when we say that complicated or complex problems require complex solutions that don't necessarily yeah. always fit on a bumper sticker. Jessica Four yeah. running for Congress. The website is Jessica Four with an E. That's her last name. GA.com, right. right? Jessica Four with an E. GA.com. Correct. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Good luck in the primary and hopefully in the general election as well. Thank you for joining the Ron Show today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. My thanks to Jessica. Also, Melita Easters with the Georgia Win List for explaining the Alabama IVF situation in better detail for me than a man of my limited intellectual capacity could. Back tomorrow, 9 to 10 a.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, and then wherever you podcast, show notes, RonShowATL.com. Have a good one.